This uh, past week, like many of you, I've been just heartbroken over some of the images, some of the video, some of the speech that we've heard come out of the aftermath of what happened in Charlottesville. Just absolutely disgusting to see racism and to see hate and to see bigotry on display for the entire world to see. You know, I was challenging some students this past week not to miss the big picture of what's going on. See, it's easy to hear things that you find disgusting and lash back out at that. It's easy to meet hate with hate, to meet anger with anger. But my encouragement to them was don't miss the big picture of what the real issues are. I ask them, suppose I were to wake up one night in my house and my house were to be filled with smoke. What would you think of me if I were to get out of bed and wake up Courtney and say, hey, sweetheart, get up. The house is full of smoke. We got to do something about this odor here. And I were to raise my window and turn some fans on and say, we got to get this smoke out of here. Go get the Febreze, start walking down the hall and start spraying the Febreze because we got to take care of this odor. What would you think about me? You know what the student said? You're an idiot. I was like, ah, you're just waiting on your chance to say that, weren't you? But yes, I would be an idiot because what I have is not a smoke problem. What kind of problem do I have? I got a fire problem. And I think in looking at the issues of society today, too many people are focusing on the wrong things. Too many people are trying to spray Febreze at some very significant issues and it ain't working. Because what we have in our society today on display is really not social issues, they're spiritual issues. See, at Sugar Hill Church, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about social issues. Pastor Chuck always says the reason is we want to spend our time talking about Jesus because if you get Jesus right, you'll just tend to get everything else right. And in considering our social issues, I think we need to take a step back and we need to look at the big picture because I think too many people see and respond through the wrong lens. Here's the big idea. Sociology must be viewed under the banner and through the lens of theology. See, I, I think that we need to sometimes just kind of push back from the keyboard and look at the big picture and say our response needs to be theocentric, Christocentric, and bibliocentric. What does God have to say about it? What does Jesus have to do with it? And where does the word of God stand on it? One of the more significant things that happened in my life a number of years ago, I was praying through some issues and, and the way I was feeling about some things. And in my prayer, I said, 
Lord, would you give me eyes to see as you see? Give me a heart to love like you love. And would you break my heart for what breaks your heart? That's a line of a worship song that I love. And I said, Trip, why don't you dare to actually pray that prayer and not just sing that song? And when I prayed, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, I felt compelled to watch the evening news that night. Now, I used to be a news junkie. Then I got to the point, I just can't take it. I cannot take it anymore. But as I watched the news that night, God began to do something in my heart. And as I watched the evening news, what I found was my heart began to break as I looked at the news and I looked at the problems of the world through a little different lens. And as I considered the lens of scripture, as I consider what does God think about these people? What does God think about what's happening here? Some things began to come to my mind that admittedly and ashamedly don't always come to my mind at first. I started to consider and notice the commonality of humanity. In scripture, we see that we're all kind of in the same boat here. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we see that we were all created in the image of God. But when mankind sinned in the garden, sin began to decay and destroy the earth and the image of God in mankind was not completely destroyed, but it was tainted and it was tarnished. Romans 3, 9 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as I began to see that, you know what? The issue of the violence, the hate, the racism, the, the, the real issue behind all of these things is really, it's a sin problem. And as I continue to watch, I actually, begot, I actually became more convicted over the sin that was in my own heart than the sin that I wanted to be angry at on TV. Bibliocentrically, I also was reminded of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The people I'm seeing on TV, Jesus died for them and their sin as much as he died for me and my sin. Now my sin may not look like their sin, but my sin separates me from God as much as their sin separates them from God. Second Timothy two, three and four. This is good and pleases God our savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. It is convicting to consider that the person that I want to hate and lash out at, that God wants them to know the truth of him. How about Romans 10, 9 and 10? Tells us anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile in the same respect, they have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on his name and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. 
and will be saved. And then the reality in Revelation 7, 9, John's vision, after I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb of God. If I realize that eternal life in heaven is for all who put their trust in Christ, and I then want to discriminate and not even hate, but to look at someone differently because of where they come from or the color of their skin or where they live or, 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 or what their culture is, you know what? If you got a problem with the color of someone else's sin, then you got a problem with heaven. Because every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every culture will be represented there. So I'm mindful as I'm watching this of not only the, the commonality, what we all have in common, and the cliff notes is this, we're all messed up apart from the grace of Jesus. But also the diversity of, of uh, humanity Psalm 139 points out that we are all uniquely made for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That person that I see that I want to punch in the face, they were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Well, something went terribly wrong and what went wrong was sin. I also realize in that that God has uniquely gifted everyone to bring glory to him and to serve the body, 1 Corinthians 12. Yes, the body has many parts, not just one. If the foot says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less a part of the body? And if the ear says I'm not an eye, would it make it any less? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you even smell anything? When I look around and I see people who are different from me, I should celebrate that because that is part of God's design for his church. God's design is not that we all look alike, that we not all have the same personality or even the same giftedness. God's design is that we take who we are and how he made us and we submit it to him for his purposes and for his glory. And that is called the body at Christ doing the work of Christ. There's something else that comes to mind. Not only the commonality of humanity and the diversity of humanity, which actually should biblically be celebrated, but the longing of all humanity. Now, this will change your perspective here if you get this, because this rocked my world. To understand that every person that I will see today, every person I will come in contact with this week, in fact, everyone who's ever been born, they were born with certain longings that were placed deep inside their heart. The first longing is this, the longing to be loved unconditionally. That longing is in the heart of every person and where can that be satisfied? First John 4, 8, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We know how much God loves us and we've put our trust in him. God is love and all who live in love live in God 
and God lives in them. There is truly a God-shaped void in the hearts of every person that can only be filled by him. We all have the longing to be loved unconditionally. Another longing we all have is the longing to belong. See, God created us to live in community with each other. From the very beginning, God created Adam and he said, it's not good that he be alone. All throughout scripture and even in uh, the institution of the church, the whole idea is we are to live in fellowship and in community as the body of Christ. Check out this language. Romans 12, four and five. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That's why last week Chuck made a big deal of groups. That's why Pastor Bobby told us this morning, hey, please go sign up for groups either on the app or in the lobby. Groups are a big deal, why? Because we were created to live in community with one another, to do life together, to have each other's backs, to pray for one another, to support each other. That is what the body of Christ, that is what the church is all about. That's why we say welcome home here, because we are a family. There's another longing that we all have, and that is a longing to discover significance and purpose. How do we find significance and purpose? In knowing God, in loving God, and in showing God to others as we glorify him. Some key passages I always go back to to remind me of my purpose. Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 40, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Well, that's easy, love God with everything you have. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a lot of love because we love us ourselves, don't we? And then our purpose is also found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, when he said, go and demonstrate me to the world. Tell everyone about me. Share me with the world and baptize and teach everything I've commanded you. Now get this. If we have these things in mind, if we have in mind that, you know what, we're all in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of a savior. Every one of us, without the grace of God, if we were left to our own sin, would be in a hot mess. And there is no telling what would come out of our mouths. There's no telling what we would do but for God that we were created uniquely different, that that should be celebrated. And that every single one of us has certain longings in my heart that can only be found in Jesus. Then we will watch the news and we will view our world differently. When I look at that person who is spewing hatred and racism, when I see people as a part of terrorist groups or gangs, you know what, I, if I keep in mind that you know what? Supremacy groups, terrorist groups, gangs, how do they recruit people? They play on people's God-given longings. That's what they're doing. 
Instead of me hating them, my heart should break for them that they're putting their faith and their trust and their identity in something that will never, ever satisfy or will never, ever fulfill them. Why do we say all the time, if you get Jesus right, you'll get everything right? Because, for instance, racism, the root of racism is sin. The cure for racism is the cross. I wanna demonstrate in our remaining time this morning why we say if you get Jesus right, you'll get everything right. I want us to look in John chapter four. If you have a Bible, if you could turn there on an app or you can follow on the screens here. But in John chapter four, Jesus gives not only a definitive statement on racism, culturalism, classism, equality, but we see the effects of getting Jesus right. In John chapter four, let's look together in verse one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, he went once more to Galilee. So we see Jesus was gaining some popularity here. People wanted to check out who he was. They had heard things, but Jesus had not yet revealed that he was the Messiah. And in verse four, we see he had left Judea and he was going to Galilee. And it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, why is this important? Okay, so you had Judea in the south, little geography here. You had Galilee in the north, and between the two, you had Samaria. Well, of course he had to go through it. It was like the shortest distance to get from here to here. But here's the problem. An Orthodox Jew would never go through Samaria. Why? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. There's kind of a long backstory, but in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel. And when they invaded Israel, they took some Jews back to Assyria and they brought some Assyrians and they transplanted them. They left them in this region of Samaria. So as the two groups mixed, the Jews began to consider them, they actually called them dogs. You've moved into our country, into our culture. You've mixed with our people and you've messed everything up according to what we know and what we want as a people. They referred to them as dogs. So a Jew would, would never have to go through Samaria. In fact, he would go around Samaria at all costs. But it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through? Because Jesus was about to confront an issue head on. Jesus had an appointment with somebody we're about to see in a few verses that's gonna change their life forever. It says he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well 
and it was about noon. Uh, why is the specific, uh, I can't even say the word. Why is he so specific about why it is noon here? Okay, the sixth hour, six hours after sunrise, 12 o'clock noon. And he goes to a well at noon. And there he meets a Samaritan woman. Why is this important that it's noon? Because noon in, the, in the, the midday heat was not the time to travel five miles to get water and travel five miles back. You do the water getting in the evenings when it's cool, you certainly don't go midday. Why is the woman there at noon to draw water? Well, we learn later, she is there evidently avoiding the crowds because she does not have the best reputation in the world. And we'll figure out what all that is about in just a minute. But there is also great specifics as to what well it was. It says it was Jacob's well. It gives the exact location and it was the well of Jacob that he had given to his son. Why is this important? Because Jacob was loved by both the Jews and the Samaritans. He was the father of both people. The Jews worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books. And in the Pentateuch in Genesis, we see Jacob is a prominent figure. So they revered Jacob. What is Jesus doing here? He is meeting someone not like him on common ground. He's finding common ground some way that they can relate. So he met her on common ground. And it says, when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now the disciples in verse eight, we see they had gone into town. They'd made this five mile journey there, five mile journey back to get some food to eat. While they're gone, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman and he does something that would have been considered absurd. He says, will you give me something to drink? The woman is in shock. Not only is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, he is wanting to put his Jewish lips on her Samaritan cup to drink some water. She's shocked in verse nine. Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not even associate with Samaritans? How did she know he was a Jew? He didn't say he was a Jew. He probably didn't wear a name tag. Hi, my name's Jesus and I'm a Jew. How did she know he was a Jew? By the way that he looked and the way that he dressed and the way that he talked. I think this is important because Jesus did not give up who he was. He maintained his cultural identity, but he didn't allow his cultural identity to get in the way of doing his father's business. So many people think if I come to Christ, I gotta give up who I am. 
No, you don't have to give up who you are. You just need to take who you are and submit it to the glory of God. God wants to use you who he made you to be with all of your uniqueness, with all of your giftedness, with all of your style, with all of your personality. He wants to use it for his glory and for his fame. Too many people allow their culture or how God has made them to be an excuse of why they don't do the will of God. And God is saying that is the exact thing I want to use for my glory. Give it to me. One of my favorite preachers, besides Chuck Allen (laughs) and Bobby McGraw, is Dr. Tony Evans. And on this matter, Dr. Tony Evans says this, it is technically, for a follower of Christ, it is technically incorrect to call yourself a black Christian or a white Christian or a Hispanic Christian because then you make your color or your culture an adjective. It's the job of an adjective to modify a noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or culture in the adjectival position, you have to keep shaping the noun so that it looks like the adjective that describes it. You and I must always put our faith and our Christianity in the adjective's position. Because that should define our humanity. Our humanity should not define our faith. But too many times we get this wrong and what we do is we change our faith to fit our culture. We change our faith to fit what everyone around us, our people, are doing. Our humanity should never, ever define our faith. Jesus stayed who he was, but he operated from a different perspective. Being who he was in human form, he kept the perspective of heaven. Now notice this, Jesus hadn't done any preaching yet. What's he doing? He is loving someone that is not like him unconditionally. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered her when she said, uh, how can you even ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, give me some of that. Give me, that's awesome. Then I won't have to make this walk all five miles in the heat trying to get well. You got something where I'll never thirst again? Give it to me. I will certainly take some of that. And look in verse 16. Jesus starts to meddle a little bit. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's sure enough, right? Because 
you've had five husbands and the guy you're shacked up with now is not even your husband. See, Jesus at this point begins to confront her with her sinfulness and he begins to cut to the very core of her heart. She has been trying over and over and over and over again to satisfy the longings of her heart with things other than the only one who could satisfy her heart. And Jesus is saying, you're getting it all wrong. And at this point, we see that his sociology has led way to theology because he starts getting at the core of who she is. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet, you think? Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews, the New American Standard says you people, this is a, like a, a racial dig right here, but you people, claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't even know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. She's saying here, Jesus, we are different because my ancestors, I was raised to know that over here is where we worship and how we worship and you people were raised over here. And Jesus said, lady, let me set the record straight. You don't even know who you're worshiping. You don't even know. But, 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 but Jesus, I was, I was raised. I mean, my daddy told me that this is, this is right. And he learned that from my granddaddy and my great granddaddy. And man, this has been going on for over 700 years. You know what Jesus says? He calls her out here. He lets her know in a hurry that what she had been taught what had been passed on in her heritage was wrong. Here's this, the truth right here. If what your mama and daddy has taught you contradicts the word of God, mama and daddy were wrong. Too many people pass on hate and they call it heritage. If what we have learned is contrary to the word of God, what we have learned is wrong and we need to change it and we need to not pass it on to our children anymore. Jesus said, you don't, you don't even know the God that you're worshiping by tradition. He's telling her it's not about your religion, it's not about what you've learned. And check out what happens next. as he's educating her on the fact that truth must override tradition. He said, God's looking for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. 
God's looking for people who will worship with the right heart and an objective standard. In verse 25, the woman said, well, I know this. I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now picture this. She's sitting with Jesus. And she said, well, all, all this stuff's too confusing for me. Talking about religion, you're trying to tell me everything I've learned from my parents is wrong. All I know is when the Messiah comes, we'll get all this straightened out. And what does Jesus say? I can imagine he's laughing at this. Looking at her, shaking his head. And he said, I, the one speaking to you right now, right here, face to face, I am he. This is the climax of the story right here. Jesus says, I am he. The woman was right when she said, when the Messiah comes, we'll get all this worked out. And Jesus says, hello, I'm here. Let's go ahead and get this worked out. He said, I am he. We can love people. We can cross the aisle. We can cross the train tracks. We can be kind to other people. But if we are not giving them Jesus, the longings of their heart will never be fulfilled. The longings of their heart will not be filled because we're nice to them. We have to give them Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus has made it so clear to me, Trip, there are people that you are walking by every day, they just need me. Reach out to them, love them, meet them on common ground, meet them where they are, accept them for who they are, but in the end, give them Jesus. Years ago, I was at a restaurant, blew my mind because I felt the, the, the Lord impress on me, share me with this waitress. And so it was so uncomfortable, but I was like, okay. So I started talking to her about matters of faith. I asked her if she knew Jesus. She said, tell me about him. I explained the good news to her. She sat down in the booth with me, gave her heart to Jesus. And what she said, I'll never forget. She said, I've been laying in bed at night, crying out to God. God, if you're out there, I believe you are. Can you just show me how I can get to you? Just send someone to tell me how to get to you changed, rocked my world because Jesus is the answer. Our, our little programs we come up with, spraying Febreze. Well, maybe if we just have a little meet and greet and do spraying Febreze. At the heart of the matter is love Jesus and give people Jesus. Now, real quick, the end of the story, this is of great significance here. Because in verse 27, the disciples come back and they don't say it out loud, but they're thinking, why is Jesus talking to this woman? When you start loving people that are not like you unconditionally, there is somebody in your posse, in your squad, in your group that's going to have a problem with it. Jesus needed to get them out of the way so he could do what he needed to do. They come back and they're already saying, man, what's Jesus doing here? We see the lady leaving her water jar. 
She went back to town and she said to the people, come see the man who told me everything. Could he be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples said to each other, who could have brought him food? We done walked five miles in this heat into town to get you some fried chicken. And then we came all the way back five more miles. And you're trying to tell us you've already eaten? I imagine Peter saying, where's he at? I will cut that dude's ear off. Who gave him something to eat? Done went all this way. Check out Jesus's response here. He said, I have food to eat you know nothing about. For my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know what Jesus said? This is it right here. He said, you know what satisfies me? You know what fills me up? To do the will of God. I don't need a snack. I don't need your fried chicken. I am satisfied at my core by doing the will of the one who sent me. And I gotta believe every single week because I've been there before. There's people all over this church and every church that comes and they want a snack. Don't give me a little sermon snack. Might even give me a little devotion snack, but they're not living fulfilled lives because they're not taking that and then doing the will of the Father. Jesus says, you wanna be satisfied? You know that longing that's in your heart? Do my will, bring glory to me. Be obedient to me. Do things my way and then you will be filled with a food that this world knows nothing about. Then he says to his disciples, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Check out what Jesus does here. He drops truth on them. And then he says, look up for the fields are ripe for harvest. When the disciples look up, what do they see? About three verses earlier, we get a clue as to what they see. Because the woman went back to town and she told all the Samaritan men, y'all gotta come see this. Y'all gotta come check out Jesus. And it says that they all started making their way to Jesus. When the disciples look up, they see these Samaritans coming at them. And Jesus done set up a situation right here. He drops truth on them, and then he says, y'all need to look up. Y'all got a saying, we're going to wait four months, and then the harvest will be ready. He says, look, look, the fields are ripe for the harvest now. You know what Jesus is saying? Man, take this truth I just gave you and look right in front of your eyes and do something. This story ends in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two more 
days. Now, just a couple of hours earlier, this woman was disgusted because he wanted to put his Jewish lips on her Samaritan cup. A couple of hours later, they're saying, Jesus, why don't you stay the weekend? When we do things God's way, it doesn't take long to fix the problem. Our country's been trying for over 200 years to fix some significant problems. And I just gotta believe if the church just got Jesus right, we stopped hating people who hate and we started letting our hearts be broken for our own sin. We met people on common ground we stepped out into a situation that was uncomfortable and we just loved like Jesus loved and we gave people Jesus. I gotta believe that the solution to the problem would be seen. The question like Jesus dropped on his disciples, what are we gonna do with the field that's ripe for harvest? What are we gonna do? See, we need a different perspective. I believe, first of all, we need to look in and allow the sin that is in our own heart to humble us and to break us. I think we need to look up and we need to take any bit of sin or bigotry or hatred or anything in our own hearts, we need to give it to God. And then I think we need to look out and we need to serve the way that Jesus served. Let's bow our heads together. We see that Jesus met, in an encounter, he met this lady's deepest needs to be loved unconditionally, to belong, to have meaning and purpose in her life. Have you allowed Jesus to meet those needs in your life? if you've never trusted him, if you've never given your heart and life to him, would you today open your heart and say, Jesus, I am messed up because of my sin. I know that my sin separates me from you. And I know that it is only through what Jesus did on the cross that I can be saved. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I say yes to you and I receive you and I submit my life to you. If you have done that before, but somewhere along the way, you have allowed sociology, what everyone else around you is doing to override theology, the truth of God and his word. Maybe you've let some racism, some bigotry, some hatred creep into your heart. Maybe somewhere along the way, you were taught something that just wasn't right. And in reality to the word of God, you just need to say, God, forgive me. Maybe today you just need to say, Jesus, help me to see as you see so that I can love like you love. Maybe today, probably one of the most radical prayers I've ever prayed Maybe today, you just need to say, Jesus, let's try this. Would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? Father God, we thank you for your incredible love that you have for us. 
Father, my prayer is that we as a church will get you right. That we'll not look to ways of the world, but God, we'll look to you. Father, may you truly break our heart for what breaks yours. And may you give us eyes to see the fields, the harvest that is so ripe. Father, this week, may we not just say, amen, that's such a good thought. May we not just say, yeah, that would be good if we could be that as a church. But God, may we, without even celebrating it, without even feeling the need to put it on Instagram or Facebook, may we just go serve somebody this week in your name. And God, as we submit who we are to all that you are, we trust you with the results. Thank you that you're a God who heals, you're a God who restores. Thank you that in Jesus, you can restore the harmony that was lost between man and creation, between man and man and between man and you. Thank you for Jesus and all he has done to save us and to give us life abundant in him, in Jesus' name.